Welcome to another Sophos podcast. I'm John Shire, and I'm here today interviewing Chester Wisniewski about the apparent demise of the free encryption solution TrueCrypt. Welcome, Chester. Thanks for having me, John. So before we get into the nitty-gritty details, can you just uh, go over a very basic understanding for the listeners out there who aren't familiar? What is TrueCrypt? TrueCrypt is a freeware application that was used uh, most often for full-disk encryption on uh, Windows XP laptops, Linux laptops, Mac laptops, that kind of thing. And uh, I think it was often confused as being um, open source, which usually means, you know, that it can be distributed uh, uh, and modified by anyone. Whereas actually it was, uh, I guess you call source available, as Wikipedia calls it, meaning you could see the source, but you didn't necessarily have the rights to create your own version. Right. So there was some news recently, as you alluded to, that um, basically TrueCrypt has gone away. So can you dig into that a little bit for us and, and maybe you know help us understand exactly what has happened with TrueCrypt? Yeah, I don't know that we know precisely, but we certainly know more today than we did uh, last week. On the 28th of May, the TrueCrypt team appears to have modified uh, their website on SourceForge to say that they've discontinued the product, um, that there may be bugs and it's unsafe to use, and that people should consider using BitLocker instead. Uh, initially, you know, there was a lot of speculation about what all that meant, uh, but it, it, it does appear to uh, originate from the people behind TrueCrypt. And I think that's one of the things that maybe adds to some of the mystery of this story that's uh, led it to have some rather conspiratorial legs occasionally, which is we don't really know who wrote TrueCrypt. Uh, You know, we know that Microsoft is behind BitLocker. We know Apple's behind FileVault too. But TrueCrypt, it's kind of anonymously managed. Yeah. So you you talked about speculation about why the project ended. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading some blogs and some articles about it. And, you know, some some people are suggesting that uh, uh, the authors of TrueCrypt were just basically tired after, after a decade of producing the software, they were just tired of doing it. You know, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, that's certainly a possibility, I imagine. Uh, writing encryption software is not trivial. Uh, on the other hand, it, it, it seems sort of unlikely um, in that, you know, because the source code is available, uh, you would normally expect someone to hand it over to a new team that's willing to continue on. And, and the TrueCrypt team has went out of their way to prevent that, which is kind of very different than normal open source projects in that uh, they've changed the licensing agreement to actually prevent people from forking it and creating their own versions. And they released a, a alleged final version, version 7.2. And in version 7.2, in essence, allows you to read encrypted material that was protected by TrueCrypt, but no longer to encrypt any new material, sort of a, an emergency exit hatch that, you know, you pull the rope and you can still get access to all your stuff, but you can't go and encode new stuff uh, later. And, and, you know, I think that doesn't ring true to me to be somebody who's tired of it, because certainly most projects when they end, if, if it's simply somebody being tired, they, they hand over the ropes to someone else and let them continue on uh, creating and, and expanding on the work that's already been done. Right. And there's also been some speculation as to maybe some nefarious motives around it. Maybe uh, the, the code has been hacked or even there was, there was some talks at the beginning that this was all a hoax. Um, you know, the, the, the website itself had been hacked. So can you lend any credence to that at all or, or maybe help us understand why that might not be the case? Yeah, many of us speculated that it was hacked initially when we first saw the message go up because it, it seemed very odd, as I was saying, just like, you know, not allowing anybody to continue on with it almost seemed like a bit of a hoax. But looking at the the, the licensing changes, looking at the fact that this version 7.2 that was released on that day actually was digitally signed using the same keys that all the previous versions had been signed with, it does appear to, in fact, be the original team behind it. You know, I would think if a website on SourceForge was compromised that's been so high 
profile and the authors, uh, you know, contacted the SourceForge team and said, oh my God, we were hacked, it would have been resolved by now. So I think it's fair to say these are the messages the TrueCrypt team wanted to get across to the community. Yeah, that said, I think there's another piece of speculation out there as well that uh, calls into play the, the government's involvement in the, uh, any of this. And I've heard some uh, uh, some rumblings about, you know, warrant canaries and backdoors. Uh, can you get into that for us a little bit? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, there seems to be uh, an endless list of conspiracy theories as to how this might have come about and why somebody would try to take away such a great tool from the community because it, it was quite popular for folks who, you know, hadn't bought premium Microsoft licenses and this kind of thing in order to protect their data. But uh, I don't think we'll ever necessarily know the answer to that. I mean, you know, the, the warrant canary theory, I think, is probably one of the, the stronger ones in my personal opinion. But professionally, I'm not sure it really matters that much because at this point, what we know is that you know the code has bugs it won't be maintained any longer and the people who own it don't want anyone using it and all those things combined it's kind of irrelevant what the conspiracy is or it isn't because uh, in the end um, it's probably not really safe to use it uh, you know recently there was a an audit that was kicked off by ISEC partners and they started kind of going through the code to see if it was trustworthy and that's sort of the first step that should have happened before people began to trust the code at all so that's another I guess conspiracy theory right maybe the audit scared them away because somebody's going to find their uber secret back door. But most organizations um, are not necessarily comfortable with using encryption that hasn't been audited anyhow, right? There's there's regulatory reasons that usually you have to uh, to be stricter with the type of things you're using to protect your, your data and your content. Yeah, so you alluded to this uh, in one of your responses, basically talking about TrueCrypt and, and how it, it was quite popular. And by some figures, some 30 million downloads of, of TrueCrypt have occurred in, you know, since its inception. So if you're one of these people that, you know, are currently using TrueCrypt and are now uncertain about what you should do can you maybe give us some tips around you know what should you be looking for in an encryption solution going forward well i think uh, you know to begin with i start with operating system provided encryption you know microsoft has provided bitlocker in versions of windows uh, starting with vista and that code has been audited you know going back to this audit in order to meet data regulation requirements uh, for many different countries things need to be certified and so microsoft of course uh, has bitlocker which is fips 140 2 certified to actually do the job properly. Apple has brought that into the supported versions of OS 10 as well with FileVault and FileVault 2. And Linux has included uh, a module in the kernel called DMCrypt for quite some time that also provides encryption there. And by focusing on these standard ways of doing it, the reality is we know what encryption algorithms work and when they're vetted by third parties to be implemented properly, there really isn't a good reason to have lots of alternatives to them because it's better that everybody, I think, pitch into keeping one centralized thing secure for each operating system. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you with the recent developments in you know things like Windows and having FileVault 2 part of Mac and, and having DMCrypt as part of the Linux kernel. Those are all very useful tools to have at our disposal. But uh, you know what about things like key management, right? And in my current role with Sophos, I speak to a lot of our customers and partners and this is one of the things that people struggle with is, is so, okay, I've got all these assets that are encrypted. How do I manage the keys? And this is where, you know, when you're, when you're looking at a new solution, you might want to take that into account. Obviously, you know, these, these solutions are going to use trusted algorithms and are going to bring you this the same level of, of encryption that is available for all these different operating systems. But when it comes to the ease of which you can assign keys, revoke keys to these different assets, I think not discounting the ability to very easily uh, manage these keys is, is 
quite important. I couldn't agree more. It's one of the problems we've seen kill encryption in the past. I mean, many people have heard of, say, using PGP to encrypt their email. And the number one reason people don't do it is how do we manage all these keys? And how do we exchange keys with all of our friends? And while there's some great technical solutions to that stuff, it's not very usable, right? And, uh, you know, Apple makes a little bit of an attempt at key management with uh, allowing you to put your file vault keys in iCloud. But uh, I, I, I'm not real comfortable sharing my keys outside my organization, right? The whole point of encryption is to keep my stuff mine. And, in you know, it's better to keep it in-house. And, and in fact, you know, another thing to look at is, you know, the proliferation of data and not just the stuff that's on your laptops, but where, you know, the, the other places all that sensitive data ends up. I mean, almost everyone I know today is using Dropbox, SkyDrive, Google Drive, or any of a whole bunch of other ones to share information with different devices and with different people all the time. And being able to encrypt that stuff is really important. And I guess it comes back to your point of key management, right? I mean, if you can look at encryption solutions that allow you to use that same set of keys and be able to go, hey, let's encrypt the cloud, let's encrypt, you know, data everywhere, but using one set, you know, one centralized repository to manage all of the keys, then it starts being easier and easier to encrypt more than just your disk on your laptop. Uh, well said. And I think, you know, when we're talking about the, the multiple operating systems, so you, you mentioned some platforms at the beginning, Windows, Linux, and Mac. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't include things like mobile devices in there as well, right? I think it's fair to say the majority of, of people out there are on um, either the iOS or Android platforms. If you can do it, if you can if you can look at a solution that, that also takes those into account, those devices into account, and does things like, you know, ensure that the encryption, the, the native encryption in those devices is, is turned on, and and then even extends to the, the data protection on those devices where you have the ability to um, encrypt data wherever it is, as you said, data everywhere, whether it's in the cloud or on your laptop, for example. But what if you want to access that same data on your mobile device, right? Have the ability to do that, I think, helps to round out both the protection of the data, but also the access to that data. Yeah, I mean, and when we hear these news stories about, uh, you know, thumb drives being lost or CD-ROMs being used to exfiltrate sensitive data from organizations, it's crazy the amount of stuff that fits in something the size of your thumbnail now, right? Like we, we, we're sometimes taken aback when we hear about millions of records and then we realize, oh, actually something that fits in my pocket that's the size of a, a mint actually can hold billions of records, right? So we need to be able to extend that protection to all of these things now. And I think, you know, certainly, um, you know, data leakage kind of stuff can try to help with that. But more importantly, if you protect the data, if it's sensitive to begin with, then it doesn't really matter if it ends up in the cloud, on a thumb drive, on a laptop, as long as it's encrypted, uh, appropriately and you can manage that encryption, I think, you know, you're you're off to the races. And so maybe for some folks, this TrueCrypt demise might be an opportunity to step back and say, look, you know, I can use recognized encryption that's certified by third parties to meet standards, which TrueCrypt was not. And then in addition to that, maybe it's time to rethink my data protection you know, strategy, right? Because if I'm going to have to make a change, if I'm not comfortable with the status and security of this project anymore, then what other advantages can I get from my effort? If I'm going to go bother, you know, resetting some keys and re-encrypting some laptops, perhaps I can take care of this cloud problem and this mobile problem at the same time. And I think the listeners to our podcast understand that, you know, the reason we talk about these things at Sophos is we do have solutions to help out. And, you know, maybe one or more of these things are things that are ringing true with you. And if there's any opportunity uh, for us to assist, you know, we've got fantastic encryption 
Foundation products in our Safeguard line. And if you're interested in knowing more about how Sophos can help, if you're looking at either moving away from TrueCrypt or just, hey, I didn't think about the cloud. I didn't know you guys could help with that. Just go over to sophos.com slash encryption. And we've got a page there with all kinds of info and you can contact us. And we've got lots of smart people that are happy to chat with you about your encryption and data protection needs. Okay, so we just went into the details of you know the news recently about TrueCrypt and we talked about uh, sort of the considerations that you might want to take into account if moving to a different solution. Bottom line though is, uh, in your opinion, Chester, should you stop using TrueCrypt? Well, I think we have to look at this the same way we look at Windows XP and, and most of us agree on Windows XP, which is it's unsupported. It's not going to get any more updates. Uh, we know it has flaws. And moving forward, you know, that's probably not a good idea to have that in our environment. And, and I feel the same way about TrueCrypt, especially when you're talking about something that by its very design, its purpose is to protect information from known both accidents and potential attackers. So I wouldn't be comfortable with it, but it's up to, you know, it's up to our listeners to make that decision for themselves. But if they do decide that they're uncomfortable with it, there's a lot of alternatives out there. And, and certainly no one should be left with data that can't be protected. Right. So if your goal is still to protect the bit, then I think you should probably consider uh, some of the alternatives that are available out there. So that concludes this SOFO Security Podcast. As always, for the latest security news, you can visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. For podcasts, you can subscribe to the SOFOS Podcasts RSS feed. You can also find us on iTunes. And finally, for an archive of all of our podcasts or to listen through your browser, head over to soundcloud.com slash SOFOS Security. And until next time, I'm John Shire saying stay secure.